You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. Hi, Spot On listeners. This episode, what I wanted to discuss is the use of these new anti-obesity medications. You know, what are they? What do they do? Um, You know, what are those long-term side effects? Can they be helpful? So today, that's exactly what we're going to tackle on Spot On. So we're back, and I brought in, you know, an expert to help us with all of this, Dr. Yanni Friedholf. He's Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the University of Ottawa and the Medical Director of the Bariatric Medical Institute and in Constant Health. You know, he's um, been talking about uh, weight management and obesity for almost two decades now, and he really, really has, he has a wonderful, wonderful online resource called Medscape, and that's actually how I found him because he just did an article in Time Magazine all about these anti-obesity drugs. So I said, my goodness gracious, I'm going to get this man on. He's going to help us tell us what this is all about. Just, you know, for transparency, he does do some consultation uh, with one of these drug companies, but, you know, um, wanted to get that out here. But I have to tell you, uh, it's a fascinating story. So Yanni, I, I, thank you so much for coming on Spot On. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You know, Yanni, you know what's amazing is that the CDC uh, has identified over and over again that obesity is a chronic disease. And there is so much in the medical community, professionals, uh, that, that agree with that. But there's a lot of people who don't agree with that. So what is your take on that? I don't think that there's any debate here. So uh, chronic medical conditions don't always guarantee problems. We know that people, especially as weights grow higher, have much higher risks for a whole host of medical consequences and also quality of life consequences. And, um, you know, if you go to your doctor and you get a blood pressure reading that's, you know, borderline high blood pressure, the doctor is going to talk to you about it and suggest it might be worth, you know, exploring and treating. Certainly, as it progresses, the doctor will likely be more uh, suggesting that, yes, we should probably do something. But quite honestly, at that instant in time, the person in front of you probably has no consequences of their high blood pressure. And there's also no guarantee that if that person didn't take treatment, that over the next 20, 30 years, they'd have any consequences. It's just that Medicine is about the risk of conditions and whether the treatments themselves carry more or less risk than doing nothing. And so we absolutely, without any question, know that obesity carries a great deal of risk for a whole host of problems from the obvious things like diabetes, high blood pressure, sleep apnea, uh, osteoarthritis, reflux, to less obvious. So we know that some of our most common human cancers have tight relationships with weight, uh, breast, colon, and uterine cancer where the research done with patients who've had surgery show that sustaining weight loss reduces the risk of developing those conditions. And so it's all about risks and benefits. 
You know, that's so interesting that you say that when you equate that to high blood pressure medication. There isn't a doctor on this earth that's going to say, Gina, you have, you got way, way high blood pressure, but you know, let's wait and see what happens and let's not treat the risk. You know, like you said, something could happen, something could not, but who the heck would want to take that risk? Because I love the way that you, you know, compare that to, to a chronic disease like hypertension, high blood pressure. So tell us, what are these drugs? What do they do? So, so the drugs are, are uh, at this point, we have, uh, I guess I would describe this as sort of the, the new generation of anti-obesity medications. Uh, they are uh, glucagon-like peptide 1 analogs currently. So glucagon-like peptide 1 is a hormone produced by our intestines when there's food in our stomachs. We've been using these drugs actually in type 2 diabetes for nearly 20 years. So I think uh, the first of these drugs was approved by the FDA in 1998. That's a drug called liraglutide. That's a daily injectable GLP-1 analog. And uh, we've been using them in obesity for less time, not because we didn't know that they helped, but because the hurdles that are put in front of obesity drugs to clear to become approved are much higher than virtually all other drug categories. And that's because, unfortunately, weight bias permeates uh, the medical community as well. So we use them in obesity because there's a receptor for that hormone in the appetite control center of the brain, an area called the hypothalamus. And when it binds to that receptor, it turns on some neurons called POMC neurons. And when they're firing, people experience decreased hunger, decreased cravings, and they feel full more rapidly. And all of those are very useful uh, in weight management. That's interesting. So they have been, this dr drugs have been used for 20 years, you said, for those with diabetes. So those that have diabetes, so this has helped them lose weight and therefore lower their blood glucose levels, correct? Well, so it also works directly for patients with diabetes in the sense that it allows the body to produce insulin more efficiently. Okay. And so it, it works, it's got two pathways for diabetes, a direct and an indirect, where the direct would be the impact it has on insulin and its effects on blood sugar control. And then the indirect effect would be from the weight loss. So yes, it's a very useful drug in diabetes. Remember too, though, in diabetes, we have literally dozens and dozens of drugs that are available to us. In weight management, we have, you know, uh, less than a handful. And so I'm not suggesting that people, you know, should say that obesity is more important than diabetes. But what's interesting is in the medical discourse and societal discourse out there around these drugs shortages, we do regularly hear, oh, we can't take these drugs away from patients with diabetes. I'm not sure how we rank which condition is more problematic, especially considering how many medications are in fact available for the treatment of type 2 diabetes current. Interesting. So if you have diabetes and you would get prescribed this medication for your diabetes, it's covered by insurance, correct? So it would very likely by the insurer. So I, I practice in Canada and uh, certainly these drugs in many cases are covered by insurers for diabetes and in fact are explicitly not covered for weight management. Uh, but I, I can't claim to know how the system works over there. Um, you know, we've got our own flaws over here, but I know over there is pretty bonkers too. So I'm, I'm not certain what to say. Oh no, we're just clean as a whistle here in the States. Not, not us. Okay. But listen, what I was reading on that is that if you are prescribed these drugs and the insurance company doesn't pick them up and you want them to say to better manage your weight, we're talking a lot of money here, right? 
Well, so a lot is a relative term. I'm not suggesting it's not a, a, a non-substantial amount of money. I'm just saying that it's quite in line with pretty much all other new medications that are developed. So the annual cost in the States is much higher than the annual cost here in Canada for Ozempic. Um, the annual cost in the States, I believe, is $13,600. Uh, here in Canada for uh, one milligram uh, per week, which is a common dose, per month, the cost is roughly $250. So it's a very different price. But when we look at uh, the 17 novel drugs that the FDA approved since July 2022, um, the average cost of those for an annual drug is $193,900. And here we're talking $13,600 for a drug that absolutely markedly clinically improves a person's uh, risk profile medically and reduces their weight and does so uh, likely in perpetuity in that our long-term studies would say that if you continue the drug, it continues to work. I was going to say, because I just read a, a, about a study that it reduced people with diabetes who have taken this drug, it reduced their risk of heart attacks, heart diseases. So can you talk about that? That's right. So that's being studied more carefully right now in a trial called the SELECT trial. But there is some thinking that independently of the impact this drug has on blood sugar and body weight, it may help with the prevention of cardiovascular disease. There's also some thinking that it may help in the prevention of dementia. And it's also being studied in the use in use for addictions, uh, where certainly I can tell you experientially in our practice, and I, I see this with my colleagues as well, uh, for patients who have struggled with different forms of, of substance use disorders, uh, alcohol use disorder, for instance, uh, these medications can prove to be beneficial as well. So, uh, you know, th they really are uh, quite remarkable drugs, and it's also quite remarkable how negative the coverage has been of these drugs. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So just briefly, if you'll indulge me, you know, that there's been recently there was a drug that was approved for Alzheimer's that the FDA says we should cover for, for everybody in the States. Medicare said, yes, we're going to approve it. Meanwhile, that drug literally does not show a clinically meaningful benefit. When they look at the studies of the drug, it does not. In fact, I don't remember what the wording was. It was something like patients may not notice that they've actually had any, <laughs> any benefit from this drug. Um, and the cost for that drug annually, when you include the testing required to look for brain swelling, which is an unfortunate side effect, is around $90,000 a year. And here there has been applause around the, uh, you know, uh, across the board for the approval of this drug. Meanwhile, here's a drug that prevents a myriad of chronic conditions, improves quality of life. Um, and we are saying, oh, you know, we shouldn't be covering this medication for patients. You know, something, you hit a, a spark in me. I have, unfortunately, I have Alzheimer's in my family. And so As do is, I, is, yeah. Yes, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm getting to the point, Yanni, that who doesn't have it in their family, right? And it's such an, it's such an emotional draining disease to watch people that you love just, you know, uh, change so dramatically. And that's so interesting that, that what you just said, because it's like, we'll pay anything, to get her on this drug to hope we slow it down. Yet when it comes to anti-obesity uh, medication, right away it becomes, well, 
they should just change their diet and, you know, walk more. And, you know, we put the blame on the patient. And people don't understand that. And people said, this is your fault because you don't change your diet or you're lazy, whatever. And they infer this with the problem is on the patient. We're in Alzheimer's, it's the poor patient. There are literally thousands of genes and dozens of hormones we've identified that are involved in weight regulation. So that's everything from a person's personal levels of hunger, their levels of craving, how long it takes them to feel full, how long they feel full for, to their metabolisms, to the emotional impact food has on an individual. Um, when we think about hypertension, we know there are lifestyle levers for hypertension too, but we don't require patients to audition for medication before we prescribe it. You know, and, and that's really what we're talking about here is suggesting that patients need to fail as if they haven't tried you know, dozens of times in their lives in the past. But there's this whole idea that, well, because there are lifestyle levers, we shouldn't have this medication or we shouldn't prescribe it or we shouldn't cover it. But there's lifestyle levers for virtually all of our chronic non-communicable diseases. But we only moralize about this one. Right. That's right. All right. So this drug um, will help, you know, with produce insulin, which will lower blood glucose levels, make the, works in the brain to make um, decrease in appetite. So that's what hopefully you'll be eating less. The fact that it's been used 20 years already gives us some good data about the potential long-term side effects, right? So the drug category has been used for 20 years. Ozempic hasn't been used for 20. I think it's probably closing in on a decade now, though, or somewhere around that, that number. And of course, the newer molecules, so there's one called terzepatide that's approved in the States and in Canada, not available here, but I understand it is available over there. Um, that's a newer molecule. There's a, a newer, even still, drug in clinical trials called, if I can pronounce it properly, metrutatride or something along those lines. But, uh, you know, all this to say is, you know, these drugs are new, uh, but the actual category of drug that we're currently prescribing with uh, semaglutide or ozempic or liraglutide, which is also known as Saxenda, um, those drugs, or Wigovi also is the same thing as ozempic, excuse me, um, those drugs... Uh, we're fairly confident in thinking that there likely isn't going to be a very surprising black swan side effect, right? That this is, these drugs have been used, they've been prescribed a very large number of times. And so as a consequence of both post-market surveillance, as well as the clinical trials that have been done, there doesn't appear to be any real signals of scaring. Uh, but again, going back to before, the medical benefit and the risk reductive benefits of preventing a whole host of diseases improving quality of life and mobility, even to the prevention of different types of cancers, it's difficult to imagine there's going to be a side effect that would outweigh the benefits of any of those things, even if we hadn't found one yet. Right, right. You know, people don't realize that um, obesity really increases the risk of heart disease, the number one killers of Americans, I don't know, in Canada, you know, certain cancers, stroke, and type 2 diabetes. So, you know, by getting that down, you're also reducing the risk of these other That's right. Diseases. And that's what I'm getting at. And it is risk right. reduction. Risk, again, I'll, I'll point it out because people get stuck on this risk is not a guarantee. So no one is saying that everybody who has a body mass index above a certain number is going to have medical problems. We're just saying that there's risks and right. you might have medical problems. And that's the same when we see high levels of cholesterol or high levels of blood sugar or higher blood pressures. None of those things at that instant are problematic necessarily, but they all can increase your risk of long-term challenge. 
And that's the same here with weight. Again, it's not a judgment call. It's not a statement that the individual um, has failed something or hasn't tried something. This is just how we administer medications. We look at specific biomarkers. If they're higher than a level that we know confers a certain amount of risk, we talk about treatment. Treatment can be lifestyle, can be lifestyle with drugs, can be nothing too if the person prefers nothing. I mean, it's about a dispassionate discussion of the different treatment options available. And you know, the, the medication, originally it was intravenous. You had to go in and get an uh, injection of it. But there's pills now. Can you explain the difference? So the pills do exist, although we're, I don't know that we're at a point where the pills provide the same degree of benefits. The issue is, is that when drugs are metabolized, there's something called first-pass metabolism. Basically, as it's going through our intestines before it enters the bloodstream, there is the metabolism of drugs, meaning their conversion into non-active ingredients and active ingredients. When it comes to these drugs, current molecules, you need to give a huge dose orally to compare with the dose that we use subcutaneous. That's the injectable version. And so that's been the sticking point, but I can't imagine it'll be a sticking point forever. Uh, you know, the, the science marches on and I suspect that we will get better and better uh, oral molecules, just like we have injectables. It was at one point only a daily thing. And now there are weekly versions. I believe someone's working on a monthly version. So, you know, these things are improving and they'll continue to improve. And like anything, it starts out being very expensive, but down the road, then it becomes less expensive for people to get access to these medications. Yeah. Again, though, I really do. I'm not sure that it's it's fair to describe these drugs as very expensive when we compare them with other medications that, in mm -hmm. fact, are approved by Medicare um, for other conditions that provide far less benefit, uh, both clinically and to quality of life. Uh, also, again, here I'm practicing in Canada and the cost for these drugs on an annual basis can be probably somewhere between three and $6,000 a year. There's plenty of drugs that cost between three and $6,000 a year. I'm not suggesting that's not out of reach for some people. It absolutely is. I'm just suggesting it's not particularly out of line with other medications. Uh, when a new medication comes out, it tends to be expensive. I definitely look forward to when these drugs come off patent and are genericized and are much more readily available at lower cost. Here's another reason why I want to go move to Canada. The weather's better up there than down here. I can tell you this right now. But um, the, the cost of uh, medication, and you know, down here in the States, we're talking like $13,000 a year um, for people to, to, to pay for this. So, you know, it becomes more expensive. And then what's happening, I've read that you have these compounding pharmacies that are trying to put these medications together and they're trying to make up their own drugs. So there's problems with that, right? That is a big problem. And so the, the compounding pharmacy issue is a real challenge because you may not get what you're actually paying for and wanting. Uh, the regulation there is very different than with the medications you'd be purchasing from a pharmacist. Uh, so th that is a real problem. And while we're on the prescription issue, sometimes I'll hear people argue that, oh, well, people who don't need these drugs will take them and that's bad. Um, yeah, that, that is bad. And the good news is, is that medications have clinical criteria for their prescription. So if there are people who do not meet the clinical criteria for the prescription of these drugs, if they in fact are taking them, that's a problem with the prescriber, not with the drug.
And, uh, you know, the other concern I hear a great deal, and I want to make sure we touch on it briefly because it's important, is that these drugs need to be taken long term. Yes, they do. Just like high blood pressure drugs. If you stop your high blood pressure pill um, that's treating your blood pressure, your blood pressure is going to go back up. And so these, these are, again, it's not unique to uh, the treatment of chronic disease. It's not like we have an antibiotic for weight. Um, we, we have a treatment, but it needs to be continued. And that is not good or bad. It's just the nature of the treatment of chronic disease. I want to get back to what you just said. You're so spot on. I'm sorry I had to put that in there. But um, the, you know, what we're hearing a lot, we talk about negative PR, is, you know, people in Hollywood are taking these because they have to go down the runway in a month and they wanted to drop a few pounds. And that's what you just said. That's the prescriber issue. Is there any kind of, you know, you know, problem with it? Does do somebody go after a physician that says, well, what are you, she's size six. Why is she, you giving her uh, this anti-obesity drug? So physicians, at least here in Canada, have the license to be able to prescribe things off label, meaning that we can prescribe medications for indications that are not included in their approval. Uh, however, of course, if there were a problem as a consequence of that, let's say you know, I prescribed a medication off-label and it led to a very negative effect. Uh, that person could complain and could potentially sue. And then I would need to demonstrate that this is, in fact, consistent with the standard of care. So, you know, for instance, in Canada right now, and this is going to be a bit esoteric, but I'll do it as quick as I can. Mm-hmm. Semaglutide, which is the drug we're talking about, that's Ozempic. But mm-hmm. semaglutide is also Wagovi, which is The same drug, just in a different box for a different indication. In Canada, both are approved, but we only have Ozempic boxes on the shelves. We don't have any Wagovi. Only you guys have the Wagovi. Now, me prescribing Ozempic for obesity in Canada is theoretically off-label, even though the drug in the box is already approved. But if I got in trouble, if someone complained, it's very clear that this is the standard of care. And in fact, the drug itself is approved. But if you prescribe something in a way that causes true damage uh, and it's not the standard of care, yes, you could get in trouble. Wow. Okay. Let me tell you, uh, look into your crystal ball. Is this, how's this going to affect bypass surgery? Because now people are getting bypass surgery and, and for uh, people that maybe not are familiar with that, where they go in and they really make the stomach smaller so that people will get full quicker because they make it like a little pouch. Um, and, and it bypasses the full stomach. And so it sounds to me like with these drugs, like replace having to do that? Well, so I don't think so. I think there will always be a role for bariatric surgery. It's a really tremendously effective surgery with terrific outcomes that we know, in fact, extend life and improve its quality. So the research is very clear. These are great surgeries. Um, there will be people who don't tolerate these medications who will still likely need to pursue surgery. There will be people who um, the medications aren't effective for, just like any condition, sometimes the drugs don't work. Um, And so there will be people where it's ineffective. There will be people who can't afford the medications but are covered for surgery, and so they will be able to still access surgery. Interesting. Uh, But I do think that we will see a future where more people uh, have, in a sense, surgical weight loss with pharmaceutical means. So right now, Ozempic or or Wagovi, it's delivering in the neighborhood on average of about a 15% weight loss. Bariatric surgery averages around 30%. The drugs in clinical trials right now 
the last one, which I can't pronounce well, that starts with an R, um, it led in a 48-week trial to a 24% average weight loss, but the patients were actually still losing at that point in time. So it'll be interesting to see what the two-year data uh, is on that drug, but I suspect it will be comparable to bariatric surgery. And I also suspect that with these drugs, there will be less regain if you stay on the drugs than we see with bariatric surgery post-surgically. So I'm not sure where it's going to go, but it's all interesting. Yeah. And I'm glad there are multiple treatment modalities available for patients. And, uh, and so it's a good thing, not a bad thing. We've got those surgeries and it's a good thing, not a bad thing. We've got these drugs. You know, I have to just smile a little bit here, Yanni, because you just said that the surgeries, if you meet the criteria, are covered by insurance and they're not cheap either. No, uh, although you could argue that they are a one-time expenditure uh, compared with an ongoing expenditure. But, you know, I really don't think, and I'm in Canada, so it's easier for me to talk about this compared with people in the States, but I don't think that economics is how we should be metering out, you know, tremendously helpful care. Um, And so, you know, if if there are treatments that are very effective and you've got a system of coverage, whether it's Medicare or whether it's private insurance, uh, I really do think we should be covering those treatments that are quite effective, that improve health and quality of life. And I actually think that we will see more and more coverage for these drugs because the economic case for their coverage will become clearer and clearer. Right now, it's being, I think, clouded by weight bias. Uh, But, you know, the studies and the outcomes are going to speak for themselves. It will, I think, become clear that these medications save money, both in the context of preventing problems, minimizing the cost and risk of other comorbid conditions. So people might need to take fewer other medications because of these medications. And there may be impacts as a consequence of these drugs effect on quality of life and health, on presenteeism and absenteeism, etc. I really do think that we will see much more broad coverage as the years go by. What I would like to see, you know, you know that I'm a registered dietitian and my listeners know that also. So I'm very much looking, um, I'm, I'm a team player and I like interprofessional education and patient care. And so I would like to see that not only just people just get these medications, just like not even just like people who with diabetes just don't get the medication, but they they get education too. Right. They change their diet to be more healthy because I like to, you know, I'm very, very uh, efficient. I like to kill quite a few birds with just one stone. So if I can better control the patients or my peers can, their blood glucose level reduce that risk. And, you know, at the same time, I can improve their diet. I may improve their diet to help fight cancer. You know, many, many things. So what I foresee in the future, and you tell me, like, that these people should be maybe on these drugs if they need them, but also they they should be working with a registered dietitian um, to help them better improve their diet at the same time they're taking the medication. Well, so I have a couple thoughts. So, of course, it would be ideal. If everybody who had a diet responsive medical condition, whether it was diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, uh, high cholesterol levels, were also offered counseling from professionals like registered dietitians. Absolutely. Uh, That said, I need to also mention that for a very large percentage of people, intentional behavior change in the name of health is a luxury that they simply do not have the privilege to, to access. Even if they had the services, it is an unattainable luxury and and requires wide-ranging privilege to access. Um, 
the medications we have right now, I do believe, benefit a great deal from having uh, professionals counsel people. I'm talking about obesity now. Um, I, I think that having counseling coupled with these medications makes these medications work better. I hope, though, that there will be a future, and I believe there will be, where just like high blood pressure, although, of course, getting counseling from a dietitian about foods that might help with blood pressure is a good idea, the meds will be very helpful all by themselves with zero counseling. Uh, because again, I, I really do see there being a very large percentage of the population that simply can't access that sort of change because they lack the privilege to do so. But I also would prefer to have a medications where it's not a necessity because it'll they'll work better. Well, that's a whole nother episode because that's about, you know, that everybody should have access to affordable, healthy foods. And their supermarket should not be the corner convenience store. So they should have access. And so that's a whole nother episode, you know, and, and having a healthy diet should be a human right and access to it and have affordability to do that. Although right. the privilege I'm talking about too extends far beyond having money for healthy food. It involves things like um, other medical problems, uh, chronic diseases, caregiving responsibilities, financial constraints. Um, you know, having food is one thing, but do you have a kitchen? Do you have pots and pans? Do you have a skill set? Right. So there's just it just it it goes on and on. The 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 and we're talking about food. Food is our our most seminal pleasure. I think you know. So uh, you know, food never lets us down. You know, it, it is something that you know our 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 closest loved ones occasionally will. But our favorite food won't. Um, you know, so food is not just fuel. If it were just fuel, this would be a whole heck of a lot easier. But it plays such an integral role in our lives socially, in our lives emotionally, uh, in every aspect of our lives. Food is a cornerstone. And so sometimes we, you know, I think we get too keen on thinking that, well, we can just pretend like it's just fuel. And, uh, and I think that can be problematic, too. Uh, so it's it's a very, you know, it's a very difficult area. And God bless dietitians. We've been hiring and employing dietitians for over 20 years. They're hugely important. Um, but boy, would it be great if we had a medication for obesity that simply worked without counseling, because that would help so many more people. It is a very complicated uh, picture. But what, what the reason why I wanted to do this episode is because I think people are, are misinformed about these medications, about what they can do or can't do. And, and I think I just wanted them to understand more of the information and, and more have a critical eye when they read things or hear things to make it all better. I can't thank you enough, Dr. Yanni Freehoff, about coming on and talking about these medications. And let's go see where the future may come with them. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salgy Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you? <laughs>